even though we are being pushed to be generalists, I think that the, the number one piece of advice that I would give is find what you really enjoy, what you're best at, what makes the most sense to you, specialize in that because somebody's going to need that specialty. Um, don't make it too obscure, right? You know, but you know, if it's a language, then get really good at that language. Or if it's, you know, operating systems management, then get really good with that operating system and be the expert in that area that you're most comfortable and that you enjoy the most. And then take the time to go learn sort of the complementary systems with which you will interface you know, whether it's an API gateway or it's a, a storage backend or a networking stack or whatever. But even though I, I will sit here and gripe a little bit about how there is a lot to keep up with, don't let that overwhelm you because you're always going to have your base. You're going to have your technology that you're going to be really good at. And you're going to, you know, this is what you're going to go interview and jobs on and, and things like that. And pay attention to the things that you love and be good at them and help other people with them. And then when it comes time for you to go, oh, crap, I don't understand how this networking thing is going to change it. Guess what? You have built up that sort of <laughs> karma credit by helping other folks that now you can go to the networking person and say, what is this thing? And why is this not a Effect, you know, why isn't working? Oh, well, let me explain that to you because you've explained it to me. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very complimentary industry. And by that, I mean, you know, you're always going to have folks that they're going to know more about their subject matter than you do about yours. And you just, you, you help each other. With me on the show today is Thomas Cameron. Thomas has been involved in the open source community since the mid-90s, and he has worked with Red Hat, Amazon, and a few other names, which I'm definitely sure you guys have heard of before, <laughs> and we might get to in this interview. Uh, Thomas, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. JT, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really thrilled to be here. It's been entirely too long since you and I have uh, sat down over a, an actual conference table together. <laughs> yeah, so for backstory for everyone listening, uh, Thomas and I first met at Southeast Linux Fest, and it was, oh, I don't know. 15, 16, 17, one of those years. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 17, but I'm not going to swear to it. They right. all sort of blur together. <laughs> so before that, we we didn't know each other. Uh, we just started up a conversation one evening, and then that conversation ended up going for hours as we yep. talked about different things in open source, in Linux, in the community at large, how it relates to business, all sorts of things. So unfortunately, we haven't really been able to get into a good conversation since then. So we're rectifying that with this interview. Absolutely. And when I was thinking about what we talked about back then, mm -hmm. I don't think I ever got the story of how you got involved in Linux. So I figured uh, that would be a good place to start is like, how did you first come become aware of Linux? How did you get involved in it? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I, I like to say that I am an accidental open sourcer. I was actually working on contract at Microsoft when I was first introduced to Linux. I was, uh, it was during the, the launch of Windows 95, right? So, I mean, you know, tectonic shift in UI experience and, you know, and, and, and I'm not going to lie, man, I had absolutely drunk the Kool-Aid. I was like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. This is just amazing. And I had a, a guy who worked for me at, at the call center that uh, we were bringing up. And he kept talking about Linux, how this Linux thing was so cool. And, that you know, it, uh, it was just like Unix, but you could do it on a PC. And, of course, you know, I'm like, oh, Unix is dead. Unix isn't going anywhere. What are you talking about? You know, it's the future is Windows NT. And, and he kept talking and kept talking and finally said, fine, I have two identical machines. I'm going to set up NT351 on one of them, and I'm going to set up Linux on the other one. And I wound up going to, uh, you know, the bookstore, and I found a copy of, uh, I think it was Slackware Linux Unleashed or something. So it was the Slackware 96 distribution. And so I set up I set up NT351 on one of these machines, and it was like a dual Pentium Pro 200, right? So I was like in high cotton. I had this smoking machine. And, and man, it took me days. 
I mean, days to get the Linux installation set up because it was all uh, technologies that I was not familiar with. And you remember back in the 90s, back in, in the early 90s, when we were doing like, you know, setting your mode lines on your video and be careful to not overclock your screen and all that stuff because you'll, you'll damage your hardwood or hardware. And and it was right. <laughs> I actually smoked a monitor <laughs> trying to set up, you know, the, the X80 uh, or XF86 config, I think was the utility. Um, but so, you know, and it took me, took me forever to set up. And then I finally, after days of fighting through what F disk was under Linux and, you know, installing all of the package lists, uh, you know, the, the, the various floppies that, that, uh, you, you had to install for Slackware, I finally got it up. It rebooted and it actually put me on a root prompt and I was or in a login prompt. I was like, Oh my God, it, you know, I made it. And then I was like, what do I do from here? I have no idea what to do. So, uh, so, like I said, I was I was an accidental Linux user, and over the next few weeks, I was so blown away at how much you could do from the command line and how much um, system configuration you could do dynamically. Uh, that you know, from there, I went on to become pretty much exclusively an open source devotee. Uh, you know, got jobs uh, teaching open source technologies, started a company doing open source consulting, uh, did uh, early Red Hat training, believe it or not, uh, back in the in the 90s um, around Central Texas and had customers that included uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, um, Deja.com, if you remember Deja News back in the day, yep. uh, you know, it, it was funny. It was an experiment where I absolutely intended to prove the superiority of this proprietary closed source platform and was completely blown away with what I could do with open source and then uh, what I learned from the open source community. And I've been here ever since. So Slackware, that that explains yeah. exactly <laughs> why why we get along so well, because that that's that was my first entrance into Linux as well. Mm -hmm. I've I've mentioned it in other interviews. I don't think I've ever explained it to you, so I'll, I'll repeat it again so listeners you know deal with hearing it for the second time. <laughs> or whatever. So I was actually given a Slackware box because I was an annoying teenager. Uh huh. A family friend was a Windows admin, and every time I had a DOS or a Windows question, I would bug them, and mm -hmm. they got sick of being my tech support. And I now being older, I completely sympathize with them. <laughs> so they uh, he he wanted to be able to just not answer any of my questions. So he went to somebody that he worked with who was a FreeBSD admin mm -hmm. and said, can you install one of these Unixy thingies for me on a system? Well, that guy was like thinking to himself, well, I don't want to be tech support for this kid either. Mm -hmm. So he installed <laughs> Slackware because he didn't really, you know, know much about it. He could get it installed. My friend didn't, or the family friend didn't know Linux, so he couldn't help. So he just, he's like, here, this is a box. There's this command called man, which will teach you how to do the things. <laughs> and here you go. And so I had that and I poked around with it for, for years. And I never reinstalled it because I didn't want to break it. Right. Because right. the install process back then was, was complicated. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> so I actually didn't reinstall that machine until a few years later. Um, I, think it was, I think I actually used OpenSUSE, which at that time I think was based on Slackware because they actually had an installer, which was easier than doing it the, the Slackware way. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, people don't realize how difficult it was back then. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, you remember back to literally having to pull the sound card to check the jumper settings for the DMA address or the IRQ or, you know, uh, old ISA cards. And one of my systems actually had an old an ad uh, Adaptec, uh, what was it, a gosh 1542 i think it was mm -hmm. that was that was jumper set for setting up you know scuzzy termination and oh my gosh and you know the, the truth is i'm actually really glad that i went through that because i learned what irqs were and i understood what you know dma uh, dma uh, settings were and io addresses and why they were important and things like that so you know I, i'm i'm actually glad that i you know, had to walk uphill in the snow both ways back in the day. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine about that, that I think kids nowadays are almost done a disservice by everything being like yeah. pretty much done for them. Yeah. Because there's there's no challenge. There's no digging into trying to understand it. It's just, well, I just click the button and, and then it does things. Yeah. So I uh, earlier this year dug out an old 486 and I took a <laughs> copy of uh, the Mother's Day Plus One Red Hat install. 
Yep. And installed it. And like even having used Linux, you know, for so long, because things have changed so much in that time period that I'm sitting there going, I don't know what on earth I'm doing. Like, I don't, <laughs> how does this work again? Like to get a network yeah. up, you have to build the route manually, like yeah. everything. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's, oh yeah, that's how we did that. And then yeah. at uh, Self this year, of course it was remote, so we did streams. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine came to my place and we were trying to get Doom up and running on that same system. <laughs> and we could get Doom running, but then it would crash because it hit a sound problem. Yep. It couldn't reach a sound device. So then we're like, well, hold on a second. How, how do we get sound working again? So then like uh, yeah. we dug into it. And of course, finding documentation for you know Linux in 93 is kind of hard. Mm -hmm. And then we found like, oh, wait, no, no, we have to rebuild the kernel. Right, yep. right, we have to do that. So then we tried to rebuild the kernel. And it was just like, wow, I forgot how hard things actually were back then. Like now oh, you can just stick the card in and you're good to go. Yeah. Then yeah. it was, oh, well, you want to add something? Well, I'll recompile your kernel. And you better make sure you get it right because if you set the wrong settings when you compile it, you're going to need to recompile it. I remember the first Red Hat exam that I took back in, I think it was 96. Part of the exam was recompiling the kernel. And, you know, and, the, and they did, they gave you, you know, some, I don't remember what the settings were exactly. Maybe it was a sound card or something, but yeah, you had to actually go through and, you know, make, uh, make Mr. Proper, make menu config or make config, you know, set the, the IRQ address and all that kind of good stuff. And then, and the darn thing had to boot afterwards. And I remember the stress of like watching it reboot, you know, breath held, please boot, please boot. And, and it did. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a revelation to me to realize how far Linux has come since those early days. Yeah. Um cuz I think it's it's really easy these days to just look at Linux and open source as a larger, you know, community and an ecosystem and go, mm -hmm. "Oh, well yeah, it's 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 all there." But to realize mm -hmm. that all that got there in a very short amount of time through yeah. the work of a lot of dedicated committed people. Yeah. And, you know, the tangentially that reminds me of one of the reasons that I fell in love with Linux early on was that when I would run into a problem, you know, back then it was Usenet, if you remember Usenet, um, you know, you would post a question on uh, comp.os.linux or one of the one of the sub uh, subgroups there, uh, or, you know, comp.protocols.smb for Samba or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that was completely awe-inspiring to me was I would post questions and these people who had absolutely no vested interest in my success would go out of their way to say, oh, here's what you need to do and here's how it works. And, you know, oh, I'm glad to hear that it worked and, and things like that. And and so for me, it was not over, it was not only the amazing technology, um, you know, that, that you were able to be as, as granular in configuration as you wanted to be, but that there was this backing community behind it that would would spend time to make sure that you were successful. And, you know, I learned real early on, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that I love the open source community is that you kind of have um, an obligation to, to be there for the next person because there's always going to be the newbie. There's always going to be the person that comes along that that didn't, you know, grow up in computers or whatever. And, and so it's just, it's fantastic. The whole sort of... Um, inherent pay it forward attitude uh that that i love to this day i still absolutely adore yeah the camaraderie of those early days is something that you know still to this day i'm kind of like wow that's that was actually incredible because mm -hmm. people were so enthusiastic about linux that when someone came along that had a problem mm -hmm. it wasn't just the okay you're annoying me go away because my system works it's you know if i can help this person then that's another person's going to realize how awesome this is yeah, which is going to be a benefit. So like there wasn't just a I'm just, you know, going to help you because I have nothing else to do. There was actually an, an interest in helping people and mm -hmm. an interest in kind of bringing people in. And it's something that I think in some ways as a larger community, we've kind of lost because of a how easy it is. Yeah. And B, how big our communities are, that there's kind of a diffusion of responsibility when somebody shows up and has a question, it's like, ah, well, some, somebody else will answer that. I don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I've also noticed, uh, I remember several years ago now, um, probably, probably 08, 09 timeframe, 
uh, I noticed that local Linux user groups were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And um, and it, it, it concerned me. It actually really scared me uh, because I was like, you know, we're seeing more mainstream mainstream adoption. We're seeing corporate adoption. You know, what's going on? Why are the Linux users groups getting smaller? And then I realized it's because we don't need them or we didn't need them as much because we do have so many, you know, web fora. We have so many communities that are much larger than just a local Linux users group. And um, those resources, they're still there. There are still people who are absolutely answering questions. But uh, yeah, I went from a little bit of panic to, oh, wait, no, that's that's because we've arrived. <laughs> yeah, we've solved a lot of the problems that we used to have. So it's, yeah. it's sort of a it's a problem that's come about because of our success which, mm -hmm. you know, is kind of odd to think about in a way. Like, we've been so successful that now we have some problems we didn't have before. Yeah. But I guess that's just reality and the nature of any project becoming that large. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in the early days, for me, you know, back in 95, when I first started um, playing with Linux, it, we felt kind of elite, you know? We were these these bad boy hackers who were doing this really crazy stuff with these, you know, uh, sort of rogue operating systems and data centers. Uh, and today it's like, yeah, of course, you know, I've tried Linux or of course I've tried, you know, whatever distro or, or whatever. It's just, it's, uh, it's not, there's not as much of a cachet, I think. And I think that um, it's sort of supposed that people have, have at least you know, been exposed to these technologies. I think one of the funniest moments for me when I realized that, you know, Linux had won, so to speak, mm -hmm. was about three or four years ago, I was in a junkyard in Maryland trying to pull some parts for an old Ford Ranger that I have. I'm underneath a vehicle. I hear somebody walking by and then I hear them go, oh, you use Linux? And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> So I like, you know, I crawl back out and it's one of the guys who works at the yard. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, who are you? What, what what's going on? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I, I saw your, your shirt and it mentioned Linux on it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I use Linux. Um, how do you know about it? And he goes, do you? <laughs> oh, I run Ubuntu. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You know, how long? And it, like we struck up a conversation. Yeah. And it was just, I would have not expected that some in some random junkyard in some random spot in Maryland that some guy who yeah. was working there as a mechanic would actually know what Linux is and be running it on his home system. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's amazing. And, and, and part of me misses those days where it was just a really small sort of elite group of, of technophiles who uh, would work on it. But the other part of me is like, that's a natural outgrowth. It's a natural evolution of, of the community. And it's a good thing. You know, um, many eyes makes all bugs shallow. And that's what what makes the community stronger is more people in it. But I, I'm not going to lie. I still kind of miss those days where it was just, you know, the, the hardcore nerd group of us who is who's banging, banging on the systems trying to make them work. So looking back at your early years in Linux and then open source, are there is there anyone that pops into mind that you would say, that helped kind of mold your understanding of the open source community and the open source ecosystem? Um, so I'll be honest, this is going to sound super like trite, um, but the, the ethos of sharing and the ethos of helping, you know, the newcomer was so prevalent that I don't know that I can really say that there was any one person um, you know, I can definitely regale you with plenty of examples of times where, you know, I would ask a question on a mailing list and, and this happened. My, my wife and I used to share an office together and we sat with our chairs facing uh, away from each other. And I had asked a question about, I think it was like HD Parm on a, an IDE drive back in the day. And I asked a question, I posted to the list and a few minutes later, Alan Cox answers. And, and a, I was just blown away, right? That, you know, Alan Cox, the, you know, the mainstream kernel maintainer of the time answered my question. Um, and, but it also reinforced that sort of, you know, everybody is all hands on deck. We all have a responsibility. To, and I remember my, I spun my chair around and I looked at my wife and I was like, Teresa, Alan Cox just answered my email. And she went, really? Who's Alan Cox? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but I mean, I look at 
you know, folks like Jeremy Allison on the Samba project, uh, Patrick Volkerding, whom, uh, with whom I've, I've actually developed a, a, a friendship over the years. You know, he answered questions. Um, and I remember thinking, if these folks who are literal legends in this community are still taking the time to answer the questions from some dork newbie like me, um, then, you know, yeah, there is a responsibility and it is from the very bottom of the chain to the very top of the chain to, to reach out and to make the newcomer successful. Uh, and so that's been something that's been drilled into me my entire career. You know, I've, I've been super fortunate. I got to work for Red Hat for almost 14 years and, um, you know, the internal attitude of we have a responsibility to be members of the community and to be good stewards of the technology and, you know, sharing, sharing the knowledge, um, you know, that was just something that was, that was in our DNA as individual contributors all the way up to, you know, Jim White, Whitehurst when he was the CEO. Um, it's, it's just something that has been drilled into me my entire career. So, one of the things that I, I kind of lament these days, and again, I think it's it's just a matter of this, the virtue of our success and how big the communities are, but I kind of feel that the that aspect of mentorship that mm -hmm. used to exist has has waned a little in the recent years because mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons is just because you know before when you would you could ask a question on a mailing list or an IRC, it was it was a small group. Whereas now you post it to a forum and it's kind of just out there for, well, when people happen to see it or mm -hmm. when they happen to browse, you know, Stack Overflow or whatever, and they happen to right. just happen to see your picture, you know, your message and not the thousand other messages of somebody else. That because it was smaller then, there was kind of more of an onus for individuals to, to pay it forward and actually become invested in helping that person. And then the person mm -hmm. who then received that help realized what kind of an imposition that the other person had taken on to help them out. So then they sought to pay that back to the next person. Yeah. Whereas now that help is kind of disconnected and it's just, you know, I post into some form a question that I have and you know, user number 13,021 right. is the one that responds. Well, okay, I'll, I'll help somebody else out if I see a question that I answer later. Do you think there are any ways that kind of we as a community can rekindle that kind of mentorship concept? Yeah. I mean, if you look at um, the works of folks like, you know, Jono Bacon, um, Jono is a phenomenal community organizer. Uh, Robin, Robin Bergeron from the Fedora community. Um, yeah, I, the list goes on and on and on. I think that there is a real push uh, by community organizers to encourage people to take on that ownership, that sense of ownership. Um, I think it's really, really hard because the answers are out there almost certainly. There are so many cases where, you know, I'll run into an error message or something's not performing the way I expect it to. And a quick Google search will find where somebody else posted it and there was an answer to it. Like, it's not as much of a sense of, oh, I have the specialized knowledge to answer this question, so I need to answer it. And therefore, I will take on sort of that, uh, that, that mentorship now it's more a matter of like, at most, what I'll do is I'll just click a or I'll paste a link to the answer to the person and there's no real interaction there anymore. And that's unfortunate, but I think that that is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a natural outgrowth of the, the size and the number of communities around open source. Um, it, it's, it's sad. I'm not going to lie. I do wish that uh, we had that more tight knit community that we did, but it's just a natural outgrowth of the way things have evolved. Okay. So let's, let's wind the clock back here. Okay. And <laughs> let me ask, We're, you're showing the gray on my beard is what you're doing. Well, right? I've, got, I've got some gray in mine too. So you're in good company. Um, did, did you always know that you wanted to work in technology? Like when you were younger, was it like the thing that you wanted no. to do or did you just kind of no. arrive there naturally because you found something you thought it was cool? It was, I'm, I'm not joking when I say I am an accidental open sourcer. I was a volunteer with Austin Police Department's Law Enforcement Explorer Group when the t from the time I was 16 years old. When I was 18 years old, I became a corrections officer. When I was 21 years old, I became a police officer. I, my entire life was I'm going to be a cop. And I spent a couple of years, I guess, three years as a police officer in a small town making enough money to qualify for 
food stamps, working nights, you know, where my, my big excitement was, um, there's a lice, a loose livestock call on 1431, you know, that, um, I thought, well, you know, I probably ought to go back to school. I probably ought to go ahead and, and, uh, instead of being a police officer in this small town. So I took a job with a company that had a Novell Netware network. Ooh, um, that's going the, fast. Yeah, I mean, this is the, and it was token ring. It was the old thick hermaphroditic oh, nice. token ring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. You could take the whole network down by unscrewing the cap at the edge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or just bumping into the dang thing. Um, but uh, so, long story short, the sysadmin quits with three days' notice. I had taken this job with this company as a, uh, as a pathway to go to school at the university here in Austin. And um, when the guy quit, uh, I had mentioned that I was thinking of going into uh, computer science, but it was in the middle of the semester. I needed, I was gonna gonna register like the next semester. The boss comes to me and he's like, "You you you want to do computer stuff, right?" And I was like, "Uh, yeah." Um, and so he turns to the sysadmin who, like I said, quit with three days' notice, um, and uh, he says, "Teach him everything you know in three days, and you're now the sysadmin." And I was like, dude, I can't even spell Novell. What are you talking about? But I took some classes. Uh, my grandmother actually helped me pay for some technical training at a, at a local Novell training center. And I just fell in love. Absolutely fell in love. I fell in love with networking. I fell in love with, you know, the, the operating system for the servers um, and kind of fell into the, the job with Novell. And then from there, uh, took a job with, it was actually Unisys who was on contract to Microsoft during the launch of Windows 95. You know, again, it was real bleeding edge technology. It was new stuff. It was changing the way people during, were doing computing, computing. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, then I got exposed to uh, Linux and fell in love with that because that was kind of new bleeding edge stuff. And man, I, my, my career, my life, honestly, has been a case of me being at the right place at the right time. And then, you know, doing some work. Definitely. There's been a lot of work uh, in, in learning the technologies. But no, I did not at all envision myself as a technologist. I was going to be a cop and I wanted to be a cop, you know, from the time I was a little kid and the reality of being a police officer in a rural town in Austin was pretty boring. So here I am. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about our industry is it's less important the amount of rote knowledge you have about things and mm -hmm. more important of your ability to learn. And yeah. when I look back at like the original days when, when IT was first starting to really swell up and getting adopted by business and all that, yeah, it didn't matter if you had a degree, nobody cared. It's do you know anything of how this works? Because, you know, I'm the business owner and I I pay someone else to know how to turn the machine on. I just sit down and hit the buttons. Yep. To, you know, if you had any knowledge or were willing to learn, places were like, oh, you you want to learn? Great. We'll, we'll make sure you learn. We just, we need somebody that knows more than, than we do. And I've noticed that there seems to be kind of, with some people, a misconception that that has gone away and it's now you just have to know all the things. And I always struggle to explain to people like, well, A, you can't because the breadth right. of technology now is so vast and mm -hmm. it's growing at such an exponential rate. You, you can never learn everything, so to speak. And even right. if you somehow could, well, three months later, some of that knowledge is going to be out of date and you're going to have to then relearn it. So yeah. the ability to learn and adapt and just be able to research a problem. Like you're facing something, mm -hmm. okay, well, how can I solve this? Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be far more important than, you know, knowing all the CLI commands and just being able to rattle off this long shell string that's going to, you know, fix everything magically. Right, right. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that I am a perfect example of is that my academic background, because I did, I did go to school for um, criminal justice, um, but, you know, hiring somebody with a criminal justice academic background to be a technologist, like you would never in a million years think that. But I cannot tell you how many people I have gotten to know over the decades that I've been doing this who have a degree in, you know, not joking, English or, you know, philosophy or something like that um, or, or marketing that they turned into a technologist. Um, you know, I think that that's still definitely there. And, and I will also 
take this opportunity to plug to anyone who's listening, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have a degree in computer science or something like that, but it does mean that you need to have some sort of training, whether it's you want to be a language developer. Uh, and so, you know, you're going to go take a class on Python or you're going to do a boot camp on AWS or on Azure or whatever. You know, I definitely think that there is um, a need for people getting the specialized education that they need. But I do not necessarily believe that that requires that you go get a four year college degree. Um, I, I point to myself as being a success of vocational education, honestly, because let's face it, I took my Netware CNE classes back in the day, and then I, then I became a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, and then I became a Red Hat Certified Engineer. Those are all really more vocational than, than what I would consider sort of traditional uh, academic backgrounds. So learn the technology you're passionate about. Um, learn how it interacts with other things and understand enough about, you know, how networking works. Like, do I have the port open on the firewall or do I have the route to the default gateway and things like that, you know, learn, learn enough of those concepts that you can have, uh, intelligent conversations with the folks who are maybe managing those resources. Uh, but you know, don't let a lack of a college degree, for instance, be your, be your barrier. Um, go do a, a boot camp or do self-study or there's a million resources out there that can let you demonstrate your value to potential employers and and you can go be valuable. It's it's awesome. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was visiting a friend and his neighbor came over to to ask about, you know, something. I forget what it was at the time. But anyway, the, the conversations came up about how, you know, I work in IT and the the guy actually, it's funny when I think back about it, he was kind of upset that his his son was interested in technology. Now, this is this is from his perspective. His son was interested in technology, but he wasn't really interested in, in you know, taking, reading these these books or getting this going and taking this training course. And he just spends all his time on this on this GitLab thing. And I'm just like, <laughs> wait, can, can, can you say more? And he was like, yeah, right. my, my kid learned some some language called Python. And he just he spends all his evenings just typing away and doing stuff on this GitLab thing. And I'm like, no, that's, that's amazing. Like, yeah. just let that continue. Leave him like, alone. <laughs> right. Like you don't understand that if he goes into a place and he, let's say he doesn't go to college and get a degree, mm -hmm. but he can show six years of Python development and dozens of projects that he's worked on that will get him a better job yep. than if he walks out of a university with a CS degree with no actual practical experience. Like with a CS degree is, that's obsolete in many ways. Right. Like there's yeah. this is not a problem. Like your son is doing the best thing, not even knowing he's doing the best thing. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And and that actually uh dovetails back with uh, to our conversation about open source is if he's if he's familiar with GitLab and he's um you know working with various upstream projects or whatever man, that kid can come out and say, hey, here are the contributions I've made, whether they're answering questions on, on various fora or, uh, you know, hey, here's a patch that I submitted or, or whatever. You know, I, as a hiring manager, am going to look at him and go, oh, shoo, come with me, please. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing the power that that brings to a candidate, especially if they have been not just consumers of, but participants in those upstream communities. So yeah, it's, it's it, the IT industry is a really, really weird animal because I'm not joking. I've known people who had philosophy degrees who are just brilliant coders or amazing network technologists, or, you know, they really grok how cloud works and they're really good at it. And, you know, you would look at them academically on paper and be like, there's no way I want to look at this person. But the reality is they're out there and they're participating and they're making their mark. And it's like, come with me, please. <laughs> so with, with that thought in mind, you started doing sysadmin stuff. You learned Novell Net Netware. You, you worked with Microsoft. You then discovered Linux. So how did you go from that point to then Red Hat? Because obviously there's there's a gap there where things happen. Sure. So what fill yeah. in that blank for me? Well, I mean there were there were a lot of intermediate steps. Of course, um, I started a small IT consultancy here in Austin that did Linux training and open source consulting. Um, and man, like I said, this is back in ninety. 
96, 97, I think. Okay. And open source was hell. I don't know that the, the, the coin or the, the phrase had even been coined yet. I think it was all just, you know, free software. But, um, so I authored a book on Linux training for Red Hat Linux 6.0. If you remember back in those days, I do. I got on, let's see. So I, I started that company up. I got some good customers. Um, some really cool things happened around there. Started to kind of make, I wouldn't say like a big name for myself, but you could go Google me. Although, although at the time, I think it was more like AltaVista. <laughs> but, um, you know, you could Yahoo me or AltaVista me and, and see that I had been participating and that I had been making contributions and things. And not code contributions, to be clear, because I am a horrible programmer. Um, you don't want me writing code in your project, but, you know, helping folks and mentoring folks and things like that. So, so started business up. Uh, then I got a job, uh, a job with the, the nascent um, Linux engineering team at Bank of America. And so then I had not just community involvement and I had had my own business, which a lot of folks look at as, yeah, it's, it's a small mom and pop type of thing. But then I, I had enterprise experience in uh, Bank of America. From there, I then went to um, Red Hat and, you know, kind of honed that enterprise experience and spent a lot of time talking to everybody from, you know, individual contributor IT guys all the way up to the architecture team team or the C CTO, um, you know, making strategic decisions around open source versus just tactical like, oh, I want to I want to stand up Red Hat Enterprise Linux in this use case. Uh, and so that's that's kind of how that evolved. It wasn't just a one day I woke up and I understood enterprise open source. It was it was a lot of work involved too. Okay, one question that people are always interested to hear, uh, and we've we've kind of touched on a little bit, is the distro journey. Because obviously, I, I don't. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, maybe nowadays it's the case where people, you know, their first distro is what they stick with. But of course, back in back in the olden days, you kind of jumped around a lot. And you yeah. you would kind of move from community to community as as your thoughts changed as you learned more. So, what was your distro journey like? Sure, my distro journey was relatively simple. Um, like I said, I, the first book that I found that had Linux in the title was I think it was it was either called Slackware Linux Unleashed or I I want to say that it was actually just called Linux Unleashed. It was one of the super early versions, and it it had Slackware ninety six in the um, book binder, you know, it had the little envelope mm -hmm. yeah. that you had the, had the CD. Um, and so I learned Slackware and I will say to this day, I adore Slackware Linux. I really, really like the way that, that Patrick put it together. Um, I learned a whole lot on, you know, how to start and stop processes and, you know, the system initialization, because it was kind of a more of a, a BSD style in it. Um, but then for purely selfish <laughs> and commercial reasons, when I started doing Linux training here in Austin, um, the most successful Linux distribution for enterprise computing was Red Hat. And so that is really where I focused all my time. That's where I wrote the training guide. That's where I started teaching classes. Uh, and so I stuck with um, Red Hat, you know, for years uh, as a consultant, then at uh, Bank of America. And then, of course, obviously, when I worked at Red Hat, but that being said, I have also made sure that I play around with Ubuntu because I want to see what they're doing. Like, I want to see what other other thought processes are and how problems are being solved by this community versus the one that I'm in right now. Uh, and so I, I absolutely believe that it's important to to do distro hopping, to, to play around with distro, different distros, because you do get sort of a different mindset on how things are solved. But, you know, I will always just because of many years of experience, I'll always come back to Red Hat distros. I'm running Fedora on my desktop right now. I run RHEL on my filer and, and stuff here in my lab. But, you know, I definitely do love playing around with the Ubuntu's and derivatives and things like that as well. So do you remember, um, I know you said you're, you're not a developer, but do you remember mm -hmm. what you would consider to be like the first project that you contributed to or the first project that you kind of gave back to in what you felt was a meaningful way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the first project with which I was active was the Samba project. You know, I was on uh, comp.protocols.smb, uh, and then I was on the Samba mailing list. Um, so that Samba will always have a really near and dear place in my heart, because back in the day, what we were really trying to do as a consultancy is 
recognize that all these customers are using Windows desktops. And so it's kind of silly to stand a Linux box up in front of them unless that Linux box can communicate uh, with those Windows um, dis or Windows installations on the desktops. And so, man, I spent a ton of time and I got to the point where, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I can answer that question. <gasps> I can help. I can, that's part of the payback, you know? And so that, and then uh, I would say, that I've done a lot of presentations around things like SE Linux. So I've done, done some contributions from a knowledge-based perspective to SE Linux. Um, also Gluster, I absolutely adore Gluster. So I've done a lot of presentations on Gluster. Um, systems management, I love that technology, you know, being able to deploy a fleet of a zillion machines out there. So, you know, satellite and spacewalk and uh, Catello and things like that. So uh, there are a bunch of projects that I've, that I've, put small, you know, contributions to upstream. So here's a, here's a question for you. I, uh, I don't normally ask a lot of people this because, okay. I don't know, maybe, maybe <laughs> I should, but okay. with some people it's, it's come up and I kind of get the, the opinion of, okay, if I ask this question, the answer is going to be yes. And I'm, I'm thinking that's going to be the case with you, but would you say that you would consider kind of the open source philosophy in general to be a philosophy for life. Oh, 100%, 100%. Now, my background is that, you know, I'm, I'm real open about it. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been clean and sober since 95. And one of the things that you take on in recovery is trying to be of service to others, try to get out of your own head and, and you know, do the next right thing to people, uh, to, to other people. And, you know, I got sober about the same time as I discovered open source. And so that was a perfect philosophical dovetail in my life because, you know, I had the ability and even I would say the obligation to try to help, you know, newcomers and help people get getting better in their environment, uh, whether it was newly sober like me, or it was new in, uh, in open source. Um, but having said that, you know, the companies and, and I'll, I'll go back to Red Hat because I'm most familiar with it, but you know, the companies who have been the most successful in open source are the ones who have pushed really hard to drive, drive success. Um, not saying that any company, whether, whether it's Red Hat or any other company has been perfect about it. Sure. The, every organization that's made up by people is going to, going to have missteps, but, I look back at the time that I spent in Red Hat and I am intensely proud of the number of conferences that I presented at where I, I was doing pure technical presentations like here's how to solve this problem for your enterprise or for your community. Um, and, you know, I, I will say that that was a pervasive attitude across the, the entire company. As people would go to conferences, they would impart their knowledge, they would make people successful using open source, um, you know, out of just a, a personal sense of obligation that I have, I have learned and I have grown from this community. So I'm going to give some back. Um, and yeah, I mean, who doesn't remember <laughs> the, the lessons we got, we learned in kindergarten, like, you know, be nice to each other and help other people be successful. Um, you know, I love that in open source, that's, that's a way of being. Yeah. One of the things that I love is going to conferences back when we actually had those in person. I, I look yeah, forward to when we can do, do that, that again. Oh, is when you would bump into somebody who it was their first Linux or open source conference. Because yeah. they come in not kind of understanding the community. They, they may use Linux at work or open source at work. And they're kind of, oh, there's this conference. Let me, let me go check it out. And they come in and they're kind of hesitant and they're kind of reserved because they're still stuck in that kind of business, you know, mindset of, well, I, at work, I, I can't show that I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. I have to have an answer for everything because if I don't, well, then maybe they're going to think I'm not the right person for the job or they're going to look for somebody else. Or so for like yeah. personal uh, security, they, they try to, you know, make it seem like they know everything and, and that whole nonsense that we still do for some reason. But anyway. Oh, sure. But then they come to a conference and they run into people that they have no knowledge of, no experience with. And they, you know, they, they mention a question or they overhear something and they ask a little question. And the person that responds is open, is forthright, and genuinely wants to help them succeed. And it's just like this, whoa, hold on a second. Like you, you're, you want me to do better in my job that you have nothing to do with. You don't have anything to do with me mm -hmm. instead of, you know, the dog eat dog world that most people are related are used to. There's this, yeah. Oh wow. Like we're, 
you see me as on the same team because I just happen to be in, you know, using the same software or in the same ecosystem or the same communities. And that's kind of a shock to people. And then they like, they kind of look around and they're like, oh, and then like the, the blinders kind of fall and they see that there's, you know, groups of people over here talking about something and they can just go over and join the conversation and nobody's going to judge them. They're going to bring them in yeah. ask them, you know, well, do you know something about this? Or, you know, oh, let me tell you something that I learned the other day that that was really helpful. And it's great to see when people kind of realize that and there's, there's that kind of initial shock of, oh, wow, this is this is totally different than what I'm used to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I can't tell you how many times that this has happened. I, I am always um, really good at when I'm presenting on a topic, or at least when I was at Red Hat or even now when I'm at you know, AWS, um, if, I'm ta- if I'm presenting on a topic, I will reach out to like the manager of that technology group inside of Red Hat or at AWS or whatever. And I'll say, hey, I'm doing a thing on your baby. Do you want to attend? Um, and can you review my slides with me to make sure that I'm actually giving the, you know, communicating the message that you want to? I can't tell you how many times where at the end of a session, when you open it up the QA, right? Uh, and somebody will say, well, I have this really weird, obscure, you know, corner case where I'm seeing this thing. And they'll ask me, and I'm the, you know, the authority because I just presented the session on it. And, you know, I'm the expert. And I'll look them dead in the eye and be like, I have no idea. But... Hey, Mike, this is a satellite question. Can you, you know, the, the manager of the satellite team, for instance, you know, or, or, Hey, Rich, you know, you're the, you're the technologist for the, like, help me out here, man. I've never run into this. Like, what's the deal? And seeing people's eyes when I go, I don't know, (laughs) but I'm going to find an answer for you. Um, and seeing them like sort of, uh, open to the fact or recognizing the fact that like, nobody knows everything. Like everybody has the bigger guy, you know, up the chain who's going to help them out. Um, I think that that's something that was a, a big sort of paradigm shift for me when I got over that sense of I have to know everything and I have to know the answers. No, man. I mean, there's always going to be somebody that I'm going to go like, hey, dude, I don't know. Like, I don't understand how this works. This is a weird corner case. Can you help me out? And then seeing that person who is of, of, of even higher respect go, oh, okay, yeah, let me, you know, let me impart that knowledge on you. And then all of a sudden, everybody who's involved in that mailing list or that thread on the forum or whatever, like all of a sudden, we're all learning from it. And that seeing that light bulb go off, I think is is just, it is it is amazing. And it warms my heart every single time it happens. So I can't remember if I saw a talk on this, or it was just a side comment that somebody made once somewhere. But if, if there isn't a talk on it, I, I, somebody needs to give one and maybe it's me, but, uh, is <laughs> recognizing the power of saying, I don't know, because oh, when yeah. I, when I, back when I did consulting, I would run into this where I'd be doing, you know, a security audit at some place and they would ask me some mm-hmm. other question and I wouldn't know. And it's like, well, I'm presented with two options. I can pull something out of my butt and hope it sounds good, mm-hmm. but it may be completely wrong. Or I can go, mm, yeah, I don't know, but I'll find out. And for one, it's totally selfish. Like, I don't want to tell them an answer and then them find out a year later, oh, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. He gave me this answer and it's not true. But it's interesting to see people when you actually openly admit to them, like, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Because it's that kind of, it's it's that expectation that they're not expecting of, hold on, why why are you being honest with me and telling me you don't know? Because they don't expect that. And then when you're like, but I'm going to find out and then you do, it's the, oh, well, I, I want to stay in touch with this guy because yep. he will actually find the correct answer. It's not just whatever he happens to know on his head. See, this goes back, th- this goes into, I think, and this is going to get really philosophical. Um, this goes back into sort of uh, the cultural thing that we have in the United States, specifically and honestly, globally, where, you know, you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to have the, and like showing that vulnerability and and being able to say, man, no, I don't know everything about everything. And I'm going to have to go get help now. And I'll help you with that because I want to learn too now. You've piqued my interest. But being vulnerable and being able to, to say, I need help on this topic or on whatever, I think, you know, we are seeing, I think, especially in my children's generation, we're seeing people be a lot more vulnerable and a lot more open to saying things like that. And I love it. I absolutely love it, you know, and uh, I, I think that that's yet another thing that I would encourage uh, your listeners 
to do is, is recognize that, no, of course not. I don't expect you to have every answer to every question that I'm ever going to pose to you. And just be honest about that. There is nothing wrong with saying, oh, I got to go find out. Hang on, you know. Uh, so it's it's a good thing. I think that that's a, an evolution that we're seeing societally and philosophically that I, I adore. So to change gears a little bit, mm-hmm. looking at Linux and open source broadly, mm-hmm. are there things that you see being developed or being improved that gets you most excited and encouraged for what the future is going to hold? Yeah, Um you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. I'll be real honest about this. There's a there's a double-edged sword. Um, I love the fact that as we move more and more and more to cloud, that you know, there's there's sort of this requirement of understanding of disparate systems. Like, you know, it used to be that you could be a networking specialist and that was like, that was your whole job, man. All you do every day, all day is like configuring iOS on a router or something like that. Um, And then there's someone else who maybe really understood storage super well. And so they would do the NetApp or the MC or the, you know, whatever, right? Well, now because of the way that we're integrating all those things in cloud. You know, you actually do have to have an understanding of networking and you do have to have an understanding of storage, whether it's block storage or, you know, object storage. And you do have to understand, uh, you know, API uh, uh, management and stuff like that. So I love the fact that we are forcing ourselves as practitioners to be more aware of those technologies that may be out of our comfort zone. Um, But the double-edged sword of that is, holy cow, there's a lot of technology out there that you kind of have to understand. And, you know, look at me, man. I am an old gray beard. I, I started with network operating systems. I've always been a network operating system person. I really enjoy network operating systems. Um, but, you know, now I have to understand storage and now I have to understand API management. Now I have to understand, you know, object storage and uh, all these other things. Um, and that's tough. I mean, it is tough. You know, I see these folks who post jobs that are like, you have to be expert in, you know, storage and in networking and in operating system, you know, security and patching. And, oh, yeah, these three languages. And I'm like, dude, you are looking for a unicorn. The entry level position. And the the thing is like 15 lines long. It's like, no, no, no. You don't want an entry. You want an IT team. (laughs) That's what you're asking for. You want a whole team of people. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing a lot more employers who are expecting a person to have that IT team's knowledge. And so that is the, again, that that sort of double-edged sword of it is that it's, you know, it's hard to keep up, man. It's hard to keep up with as much technology as you have to sort of be able to to, to stick your finger into to bring up, you know, an, uh, a container cluster or something like that. So uh, it's good in that it makes us better generalists, but it's bad in that it takes a lot to come up to speed. I also wonder, because I'll admit, I'm a little skeptical on on the cloud thing. I, I, I acknowledge that it's very beneficial, <laughs> but I also worry that yep. we're, we're creating another problem where because of how advanced all the cloud services have gotten mm-hmm. and how user-friendly they have gotten, mm-hmm. that in a lot of cases, people that work in IT are losing the fundamental skills of not just well, not just the end of fundamental skills, but the fundamental understanding of how all the pieces go together. Mm-hmm. Because you, know, you can build a container and have absolutely no clue how the operating system or any of that works because that's been abstracted away. And you just, I need yeah. to build this Docker container and and throw it somewhere, and then my job is done. Right? Do you think that's something that at some point the pendulum will will kind of swing back in that? there will be an understanding of just how important it is to have those understandings. Yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look at, um, you know, let, let's look at, at DevOps, DevOps, right. You know, we've got these, the, this team of folks who are, who are all contributing to DevOps, which always cracks me up because it's like, yeah, slice me off a key piece of that DevOps there. But, but, but if you look at it, even within teams that are, that are doing, you know, what we call DevOps, you've got the developers who are going to, know how to package up the container. They're going to know how to make sure that the software is up to date and blah, 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 blah. They're not going to necessarily really understand at a fundamental level, you know, the networking complexities, but 
the ops part, the the guy or gal on the team uh, who who is doing the ops part, like they may be like me. They came from a background where that's sort of step second nature and that's what they do. So I think it's already there. I think there's already sort of that implicit understanding that there are some folks on the team who are going to know the storage and the, some are going to know the networking and some are going to know the actual coding and, and things like that. Um, I think that it's, I, I think for me, the concern is that you do see those entry level jobs that have 15 lines that, you know, they want somebody to come in and understand deeply how networking works and also how uh, storage works and also how OS patching and access control and fleet management and stuff like that. Like, no, that's, that's, those are, those are career paths. You know, the, you're not gonna, you're not gonna find somebody who actually truly understands every single one. So to take a previous question that I had and to flip it on its mm -hmm. head, what is something that you think we as a community of developers and users aren't focused on that we should be? Like, are there problems that you see that we should be trying to resolve, but we aren't, or we are, but doing a really bad job of it? Uh, I mean, every community, I, I don't care whether like it's specifically a Linux distro community or an application language community or whatever, they are almost by definition are going to be uh, sort of hyper-focused on the things that are affecting, you know, their functionality, whether it's within that language or within that operating system or whatever. Um, and so I think that, that the blind spot that I see is that it's really easy for us to even as we're trying to become generalists, because we can't necessarily dive super deep into, you know, networking, if I'm a developer, for instance, um, I think that the, the blind spot is that um, we don't have enough sort of visibility and crosstalk between those different groups. You know, I, I think that if you see it in a team where you've got your dev folks who are doing their things and their ops folks who are doing their things and they are within the team communicating, then that barrier gets broken down. But I don't see that happening a lot in, you know, let's say, let's say there's an open source storage project, whatever it is, whether it's block storage or whatever. I don't know that you necessarily see a lot of cross-pollination between that storage community and the group of folks who are dealing with virtual networking. So um, I don't, I, I don't know how to fix that because it's just human nature that if I'm on the virtual networking team, I'm going to be hammering away at virtual networking stuff, and I may not necessarily understand how or, or what the implications are to storage. So I don't know an answer to that, but yes, I do see that as a blind spot. And um, man, I don't know because that's going to that's going to require reaching out between all these different teams and, and looking at implications of changes. And man, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah, and it's I think it's tough in the best of circumstances. And then when you have mm -hmm. small shops where your quote unquote DevOps team is two people, like it, it becomes even a magnitude harder. Because now yeah. you're trying to condense all of that specialization down into just two people that already yeah. have everything else that they're they're working on. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you see the rate of innovation in open source is something that I've always just prided myself on, that we're always moving super fast and, you know, just all these new um, ways of doing things to make them, you know, more bulletproof and less uh, requiring editing text files and, you know, config files and stuff like that. But the problem with that is that, you know, then you get into like, oh, hey, there's this new subsystem, you know, under system D for doing whatever it is, name resolution or networking or whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, from Fedora 33 to Fedora 35, holy crap, these config files are not you know, they're not even there anymore. Oh, yeah, because this is being run by some system D service. And now I have to figure out like how the networking subsystem in my Linux instance is going to potentially interact with name resolution that's being provided by my cloud provider or, you know, networking that's being provided by my cloud provider. And you run into these corner cases because things are moving so fast all of the time. Uh, and that is tough. That is really, really tough. It's a, it is an unintended consequence, I think, of the, the rapid rate of uh, change that we have in open source. Yeah, it's, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, I feel bad about it, but 
when I am, you know, looking at a software, a piece of software or something, and I go into the change log, and there's been times where it's like I open the change log and my eyes completely glaze over because it's like like scroll, oh, scroll, yeah. scroll, 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 scroll. And it's like okay, we need a change log for the change log. Like, can we condense yeah. this down so I can get an idea? Because so much is changing so fast, like as you said. Yeah, and and there's so many times where you do look at a, at a change log at a piece of software or a service or something like that, and I, I wish that you know maybe we had a better way of prioritizing those changes. Um, you know, is this change log entry because of a bug fix that all we're doing is we're just fixing something that didn't work right and I don't need to pay a whole a lot of attention to it because it's just making things better versus, hey, this change log entry is a change in functionality. Like you need to understand that. And so I wish that there was a better way that, you know, almost like we could do have a, a or, or have a, a, a CVE database <laughs> for for um, functional changes as opposed to just bug fixes or, or slight changes in, in uh, you know, features. So I come from a security consulting background. And one of the mm -hmm. things when you're talking about moving so fast is, you know, that's another area where it's like, ooh, this this can be really bad. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always think of the, the meme of the guy on the bike who's riding it and then takes a stick and sticks it in the front <laughs> wheel and then crashes. It's like, yeah. well, why did it crash? And it's like, you know, things are moving so fast at times that it's like we've just started to get our, our head wrapped around, you know, the security issues and the security vulnerabilities that we have with, mm -hmm. you know, the framework we have right now. And now we're changing that to something else before we really understand the full complexities of things now. And we have no idea about the new things. And yeah, I look at that and I go, you know, change is great. But yet at the same time, maybe we need to be a little bit more cautious with how fast we're going or or section it off where it's not just you know a billion things at once where i mean i i realize because so much software is changing so fast you just have that as reality mm -hmm. you can't go well we're going to focus on just changing for this version and just changing for this version because well if you did that you'd yeah. have versions every day and then that's back to square one where you're just changing everything all the time right oh yeah i mean uh, i i got tripped up just the other day in the um name resolution pro, uh, process under my, my latest installation of Fedora. You know, I went to go look at the uh, etsyresolve.conf file, which is the file that I have changed for decades in setting up name resolution. And it was like, you know, don't, don't edit this file. This is now managed by this subsystem. And I was like, oh, man, I didn't even catch that that happened. And now I've got to go research this subsystem. And that's just client name resolution. Then you think of all of the suites of packages within any Linux distribution, and then all of the capabilities in any, you know, storage offering from a cloud provider or network offering from a cloud provider, like it, it becomes really overwhelming just to try to keep up with. That's what I was talking about earlier is that, that we are requiring ourselves to be generalists, but holy cow, man, there's so much that we need to keep up with. It's, 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 it's tough. It's really tough. So to try to, to put a positive spin on this, then let me ask <laughs> for people who are wanting to get into tech, they think this is something they, they would be interested in or mm -hmm. people that are like you are in one career and decide, no, I want to I want to I want to change. I want to get into technology. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you or pieces of advice that you would give or things that you would say, you know, here's some nuggets of wisdom that I've learned over the years that mm -hmm. I think would be beneficial if you kind of kept this in mind or things you understood? Or, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's really, even though we are being pushed to be generalists, I think that the, the number one piece of advice that I would give is find what you really enjoy, what you're best at, what makes the most sense to you, specialize in that because somebody's going to need that specialty. Um, don't make it too obscure, right? You know, but, you know, if it's a language, then get really good at that language. Or if it's, you know, operating systems management, then get really good with that operating system and be the expert in that area that you're most comfortable and that you enjoy the most. And then take the time to go learn sort of the complementary systems with which you will interface you know, whether it's an API gateway or it's a, a storage backend or a networking stack or whatever. But 
even though I, I will sit here and gripe a little bit about how there is a lot to keep up with, don't let that overwhelm you because you're always going to have your base. You're going to have your technology that you're going to be really good at. And you're going to, you know, this is what you're going to go interview and jobs on and, and things like that. And pay attention to the things that you love and be good at them and help other people with them. And then when it comes time for you to go, oh, crap, I don't understand how this networking thing is going to change it. Guess what? You have built up that sort of <laughs> karma credit by helping other folks that now you can go to the networking person and say, what is this thing? And why is this not a Effect, you know, why isn't working? Oh, well, let me explain that to you because you've explained it to me. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very complimentary industry. And by that, I mean, you know, you're always going to have folks that they're going to know more about their subject matter than you do about yours. And you just, you, you help each other. Just it's back to the, the philosophy that we talked about at the beginning is, you know, root yourself in the ecosystem, root yourself in the community and good things come of it. It's, that's been my experience for 27 years now. Uh, that it that it works. The system just works. Well, Thomas, that sounds like a great spot to end on. Uh, I really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It has once again been a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And let's make sure several years don't go by before we do this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has been my pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your show. I was looking at some of the names that you have interviewed in the past. I'm like, oh, I'm on the same board as Mad Dog and Neil Gompa. And oh my gosh. So thank you so much for having me.